My son, keep your father's commands and do not forsake your mother's teaching. Bind them always on your heart, fasten them around your neck. When you walk, they will guide you. When you sleep, they will watch over you. When you awake, they will speak to you. For this command is a lamp, this teaching is a light, and correction and instruction are the way to life. Keeping you from your neighbor's wife, from the smooth talk of a wayward woman. Do not lust in your heart after her beauty, or let her captivate you with her eyes. For a prostitute can be had for a loaf of bread, but another man's wife crave a man Can a man scoop fire into his lap without his clothes being burned? Can a man walk on hot coals without his feet being, feet being scorched? So is he who sleeps with another man's wife. No one who touches her will go unpunished. People do not despise a thief if he steals to satisfy his hunger when he is starving. Yet if he is caught, he must pay sevenfold, though it costs him all the wealth of his house. But a man who commits adultery has no offense. Whoever does so destroys himself. Blows and disgrace are his lot, and shame will never be wiped away. For jealousy arouses a husband's fury, and he will show no mercy when he takes revenge. He will not accept any compensation. He will refuse a bribe at the wages. You may be seated. Thank you. The kids are invited to kids' church with Kelly today. Wisdom beyond the sort of modern notions of knowledge 
which we just sort of get into our head. This is this is sort of what modern education does: is you put put out the knowledge and then you receive it, and then you are tested on it. You get your C minus and move on. <laughs> Maybe just talking about myself there. Um, weighted GPAs are terrible too for the C minus. It's not so bad in the other way. Um, the uh, we, we educate that well, but what wisdom is, and what this knowledge that the Book of Proverbs is talking about, is this deeper kind of knowledge that goes into like um, almost apprenticeship. If you were learning how to, um, we use the example of a guy uh, making swords one week, um, but learning how to even become a plumber or even to become an artist, you, you move into this apprentice realm in which you gain and experience skills through that. The part of that, that truth that the Book of Proverbs is that the book of Proverbs has this um, tension between order and chaos. The properly ordered is when we move with this skilled wisdom, and disordered is when we miss it. Now, this image I used last week, but I had to use it again because I love it. On the left is obviously an image of a um, pine branch, um, and on the right is obviously the image deconstructed. Um, but one of the, the questions, and, and the first time I saw this was in a, I think a newsletter by the guy who we talked about last week, the Lindy Man, who's this guy who just tries to follow like 500-year-old advice, like don't put anything in your body that isn't over 500 years old. So like he's like, tea, great, because we've been drinking it forever, we know exactly what it does to you. Um, Red Bull, not, uh, it's sad for me, I drink a lot of Red Bull in seminary, but anyways. <laughs> So that came from his newsletter to give credit where credit is due, and I don't think he came up with it. But he actually named the image on the left, order, and the image on the right, chaos. Like our minds work in that like it's been pulled apart, it's been dissected, it's been put into the proper, it, it looks like a good graph. This is order. But what the book of Proverbs is saying to us is that God's created order in the branch is what, um, is where we find the truth of what order is. And so in our modern tendency to want to pull it apart and to stack it all up, to make it ordered in that way, is, is a tendency to make chaos. <clears throat> and what we want to do is sort of become the people who live in order. Now Carla last week reminded me of something that I am not smart enough to explain, but mathematically there's equations that sort of govern how plants are structured, right? And, and they're true to the lowest and to the highest sort of levels. It applies to clouds, Yes, so ask Carla more about that. But this is deeply ingrained into sort of our created order, and we resist it in so many ways. But as we started each week, this is last week's, um, with, a, with a bit of an idea about what wisdom is, this week I want to start with this section from a, a book I was listening to called Little Platoons about vows. And the, the guy is going to speak about his wedding days, and the vows that he undertook. And so I want to read this passage from his book. It's a little long, but I want us to get thinking about vows. And we're going to hopefully expand the notion of vows around idolatry in the passage that we just heard. When my wife, Juliet, and I were married, in a fairly modern, non-traditional way, standing under a pair of California redwoods in the front of my, her parents' yards, shambling ranch house, in a humble corner of the Oakland Hills, in an unreligious ceremony officiated by a tall, unclerical woman, discovered, if I remember correctly, on Craigslist. I was wearing the nicest suit I ever owned, but it was a suit, not a tux, and deep green, not black. And Juliet was in a lovely but subtle and casual vintage Valentino dress, 
white cotton with a faint pattern of lavender flowers that she bought for a hundred bucks in a consignment store in Northwest DC. Of course, we wrote our own vows. We had no church or tradition to prescribe vows to us. And I will admit that though I'm a writer, I had to look for tips on the internet. The general templates, specific ceremonial beats I ought to hit. It's been nearly 20 years since then, and I can't remember the actual words I said, much less the models I used from those long dead internet pages. But I remember being drawn to the old fashioned, vaguely heroic formulations, the ones that set the touchy feeliness aside in favor of stout and straightforward declarations of commitment. Vows that seemed to relish the deep, relish in the self negating, doer dialogic of vowing itself. This vowing business struck me as, in the deepest and most dignified sense, political. When else, I thought, has one found a political body, bind oneself to a common destiny through a sovereign declaration? Thus inspired, I took the vowing language I read and ramped it up just a little bit, sharpened it here and there so that its antinomian political edge would be, if not overly apparent to our guests as they heard it, palpable to me as I said it. And so for the climactic exchange of self-written vows in our modern and secular California wedding ceremony, Juliet pledged to love me in life, loving terms that made specific reference to my tender side, my sensitivities, my idiosyncrasies, while I, it seemed in my mind anyway, as it felt in my chest, pledged to love her like a Viking. I won't dwell on this idea of a family as a little band or polis founded by death-suggesting vows. I will simply begin from the assumption that strikes me not just true, but obviously so. That's what a family is. For starters, that's what a marriage is. That's what vowing is. Not every vow summons death as its standards or limits. Not every vow mortifies your life as such. But every vow does mortify your interests and desires, everything that in defiance of its term you might find yourself wanting. In a vow that explicitly mentions death, a vow that binds you to another person until death, you can't deny there's a certain fatality to that one. That might sound morbid, like I'm arguing against getting married of its, because of its close associations with death. But most people who consciously, ceremonially speak serious vows don't feel the death there they entail as morbid. They rather feel it as a sort of ecstasy. It's a beautiful thing to release yourself from itself, to offer it as a sacrifice to something greater. Besides, getting married is a pretty luxurious version of this, if you think about it. Sort of the best of both world situations. You get the experience, the ecstasy of loss of self that comes with this death of the commitment, the thrilling plunge into the deeper way of being. But unlike, say, entering the Marines, the ritual summing of death doesn't actually summon death. You're committing to a person you find good and faithful and worthy of life. That's uh, a long passage on this guy's vows, but what does it mean to conjure death in our vows? What does it mean to bring it near to us? What does it mean to vow in ourselves? Now, most people here are married, but this I try not to give sermons to married folks. Um, I think it's a limited frame, but I do think that if you look at these vows, and this is from the Book of Common Prayers, Vows Around Baptism, you'll find that there's a common vow all of us as baptized people share. It's a vow, too, that we also vow unto death. It's a vow, too, we place ourselves in. And so when we think about idolatry, again, I've been trying to talk about expanding this concept. It's not just idolatry of a marriage. It's, idolatry, it's uh, adultery of a marriage. It's uh, idolatry of the soul to chase after lesser gods. So when we read idolatry in this text, it's not just proper for us to think of our marriages, although we should. 
it's also proper for us to think of what our baptismal vows and commitment to Christ have meant. So, so this sample question, do you renounce the devil and all spiritual forces of wickedness that rebel against God? Answer, I renounce them. Do you renounce the empty promises and deadly deceits of the world that corrupt and destroy the creatures of God? Answer, I renounce them. Do you renounce the sinful desires of the flesh that draw you from the love of God? I renounce them. And then the priest or the pastor would pray with them, Almighty God, deliver you from the powers of darkness and evil and lead you into the light and obedience of the kingdom of his Son. Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. And then it continues. Do you turn to Christ and confess him as your Lord and Savior? I do. Do you joyfully receive the Christian faith as revealed in the Holy Scriptures of the Old and New Testaments? I do. Question, will you obey and keep God's holy will and commandments and walk in them all the days of your life? My favorite, I will, the Lord being my helper. Now these are commitments that we share in another way. And, and, and this is why, I mean, I, I tried to make, uh, there are two themes that I think that would stick out in my sermons in ministry. The first is the non-anxious presence thing, which we've talked about before. But the second would be this re reclamation of our baptized identity as central to who we are. This I have this this way of um, this this sits at the back of the church, and it's this way of sort of you can you can run your fingers through it, you can cross yourself um, if you'd like, you can do all sorts of things to sort of bring yourself back to your baptized identity. I was sitting with uh, Matt Wilcox this week. And uh, we were talking about this this frame of sort of being able to come. What does church do? Is it for me to give you guys new information, new things to do, new struggles to engage, new problems? Or is it to remind you of what you know as true, in which you spent six days being bombarded by knowledge and things that deny all the truth, that you are a good creature of a good God, and you've been graciously saved by Jesus Christ, and you would dwell in his spirit? And one of the goals I hope through our liturgy, and as much as I can do in my preaching without saying the same thing every Sunday, um, is to stick to that. To, to invite you guys in to hear again the news, to hear for myself what's true about us, to not make new challenges. And so remembering your baptism as you enter the service or as you leave the service to go out in the world is another way of reclaiming that space in a bodily, enacted way. What does it mean to belong to this God and this person? That if you're, uh, I worked in the Episcopal Bookstore when I was in Seattle. They baptize infants, which is, it, I find absolutely, uh, I have, I'm not criticizing infant baptism, but these are the questions that are asked of the infant that the parents or godparents answer on behalf of the infant, which I just think is like, that's a lot to take on when you're completely unaware of the situation that's going on. When you're six days old and they're doing this to you, it sounds quite quite a, uh, a challenge. It's quite a challenge to do as an adult. Maybe it is better to do as an infant, because when you think about it as an adult, it's even more challenging. Um, better to get into it before you know what you're doing. Um, uh, that is... Um, uh, they sold a lot of books that would be about remembering your baptism, right? And then when I finished college, I worked for the Baptist for a little bit. And they don't care if you remember your baptism. They just care that it was done. Um, but the, it was, the assumption was, I think, in the Baptist church, is that you could remember your baptism. But not a lot of time was spent cultivating that remembering. Whereas in the Episcopal church, the assumption was, you can't remember your baptism. But it might be worth cultivating some memory of. 
I don't think either one, I'm not trying to argue either one of these is great options. I just think that even if we can remember our baptism, these vows we undertake, this belonging to this God, and, and hopeful fidelity, I will, the Lord being my helper, the answer to the last question, is worth remembering and pondering again as often as we can. Because what we remember in that act is something that's truer about us than all the other stories. In the reading I was reading about Faust, he referenced that when else do you perform becoming a political body? Becoming a political entity. That's what a family is to him. He's using this phrase from Edmund Burke that families are little platoons in the world of, of sort of trying to create their own order for people. And, and it's, uh, it's helpful you can see that in, in the Shema, too. The family is this little platoon that tells these stories over and over again. Um, it, it has these assumptions built into it. When else do you do that? Now, um, this is why I, I don't often get to do weddings, because the one joke I have, which isn't that great, is... Uh, well, there are three acts you'll do in front of your church. Your baptism, your wedding, and your funeral. The cynic will say they all have to do with death. <laughs> but if you really think about them, they all have to do with new life. Um, in your baptism, you're baptized into death, invited into new life. In marriage, you die to the old forms. You leave your, your parents' house, and you go to another land. Um, you leave and cleave together. You create this new meaning of body. And in our deaths, we are welcomed into the eternal life of God, our Father. So you've heard that now. I can't use it again. <laughs> so that's um, just a short, uh, it'll come up again later, but sort of setting the stage for today's sermon is that like vows are important. Now, this is lecture nine. There are ten lectures that make up Proverbs 1 through uh Nine, the end of nine, um, and this is lecture nine. We talked about last week how trying to combine three lectures together was a recipe for disaster. David will be correcting one of those errors in a coming week or two on trying to cover too many lectures in one. So I've reduced myself to one lecture each Sunday. And so this one, it's, it's called a warning against adultery, which in all the commentaries I've read, it had a terrible title like that. Um, and, and this one, was uh, the title below it was being ordained or, or, or ordained adorned with the commandments which is not one I came up with but was in one commentary only on the first four verses of this section but I thought the warning against adultery doesn't quite hit all that's going on particularly if you really want to focus on verses um, 20 through 24 which we'll do uh, in the sermon as well uh, but each of these lectures, if you haven't noticed, begin with, my son, keep uh, your father's command and do not forsake your mother's teaching. Each one of these begins with sort of this fatherly and motherly advice. There's one thing that, that I wanted to, to note about that is that it, it, Proverbs exists in this highly ordered world as we just talked about, that, that things function as they should function. When we get to Ecclesiastes and Job, um, the two other wisdom literature books that we'll do, plus Song of Songs, which is, uh, you know, two of these things are alike, one of these things is nothing alike to the others. We'll do that one last. Um, but when you get to Ecclesiastes and Job, they begin to raise the question of how does wisdom function in the midst of sinfulness and destruction and this. And, and Job uh, raises that question up to what does it mean that the individual sufferer is, is righteous? Um, what does faith and wisdom mean there? But as far as Proverbs is concerned, those are um, different questions. 
And so the advice of a mother and father assumes good mothers and fathers. So we say, good, good father, which of course uh, God is the good, good father whom we listen to. And so you can imagine how difficult this book would be as if you grew up with bad mothers and fathers. Now the wisdom distilled in it isn't contingent upon your parents being good or bad, just to suggest that like, it assumes that this would be familiar news to you, that I received instructions in this way. But not only that, it assumes uh, a hierarchy of sort of being, that there are parents and there are children. There are people who are spoken to wisdom, and there are people who receive it. And I was fly fishing with um, a local friend uh, this week, um, and I was talking to him, and I'm always interested in what parents do around springtime. Um, the, the blight on our houses that we can't get rid of but is always there. Um, what do we do around springtime? And I was asking him, and he said, you know, well, my son, he doesn't do that much, but we started Minecraft during that pandemic. His son is, uh, let's say, eight or nine. Um, I said, oh, yeah, that seems like it would be a nice thing to get involved in. Um, uh, well, I know it's a drug, Chad. I'm not. <laughs> it's like, the, you know, uh, methamphetamine is a nice thing to get involved in. Like, Minecraft is a, uh, it gets in you. I mean, uh, all things in moderation. Is, is one of my points here. Um, but he said, you know, it's, it's been hard, but he said, I'd like to fix it. It's, it's become too much for me now. It's like I, I can't seem to get him to stop doing this, that, and the other. And he's like, I don't really know what to do. And so we talked a little bit further, but I, I mentioned to him that we have this sort of um, uh, abdicating of parenthood in the modern world. He's nine. You're his parent. You unplug the computer. You uninstall Minecraft. I was nine once. I hated my parents. It lasted 12 hours. You know, like, that's overplaying my commitment. It lasted 30 minutes. Um, and we, we, we live in the sphere in which this notion, in which we, as parents or as elders or as older people, continually sort of give up what is sort of natural to us. This order that at least, like again, we're looking with the book of Proverbs, we'll get to Ecclesiastes and Job, is sort of what we're supposed to do to help people stay on the guardrails of life. Listen to this advice. Now, it's interesting the Greek word or the Hebrew word here is listen to this Torah, this instruction. The Torah is a loaded word if you're a you're a Jewish person. It's it's the first and formally the first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy of the Bible. It's this loaded thing. This is oral Torah they're talking about here, not written Torah. Listen to this teaching. We abandon that so often. We're the type of person who has eight hours free to listen to a Joe Rogan podcast. None of us. Um, we listen to it in seven or six different bites. We did an interview with um, Abigail Schreiber, who's secular woman who's doing a lot of research on rapid onset gender dysphoria, which is a thing that seems to affect young girls in a way um, that maybe uh, anorexia or, or uh, bulimia did in previous generations. And parents often will reach out to her and say, what can I do to help my daughter who's struggling or wanting to identify as male? She's never done that up until now when she's 16 and all her peers, peers are doing it. What can I do to help her? And, and Abigail says, I always ask them one question, which is, could you take their binder away, which is the thing that sort of flattens the chest. And every parent just loses their mind and could not imagine doing it. Minecraft, as Matt, uh, um, late onset gender dysphoria, 
the advocating of what does it mean to guard and help people in the modern world will only lead to ruin and disaster. This advice, stay away from the poor woman, the strange woman, the adulterous woman, these are things we're meant to do as a people. And, and father and mother now that we live in the household of God doesn't just mean genetic mother and father. Again, talking to a friend recently, we talked about the notion of, of helping young people have moments of, of shift in their lives, particularly um, in the ways that Jews do with Bar Mitzvah, like giving these orders. And we've been common in societies that men and young boys and young girls lived in sort of the maternal world, and then some ritual would lift them, boys particularly, out of the maternal world into the male world, the masculine world, whatever you want to call it. That would be an indigenous trait and, and somewhat of a modern trait, but largely lost today. Um, but so many of my friends um, are, are doing this thing where they take their 16-year-olds on a trip somewhere in the continental U.S. if they're choosing. And me and my friend were talking about that. He was like, well, I had one of those, but my parents didn't go. And he did you know, a, an intense backpacking trip where you graduate through up skiers over the course of the summer. And then you come back, and he was like, I came back changed from that quite a bit. Um, and I was like, I had something like that that was totally the opposite, which is a week uh, fixing somebody's house, but mainly there to hang out with girls that weren't in my youth group. Um, but my parents didn't come either. Um, and I was at this church. This is actually connected to baptism in Oregon, an intentional Christian community, that when one of their younger people wants to serve baptism, they send them to an impoverished area, inner city area often, and make them uh, live there with another member of their community, not their parents, and see human sort of um, dysfunction and disarray in an intense way as they consider being a baptized person means stepping into the neighborhood of chaos. And so, you know, that's my friends I think are doing a good thing with those trips, but I also think as the community of God, what would it mean to say you're taking a trip with somebody who's not just your parents? You're being elevated to a different sphere. You're being brought into a different place. This is all just on his first words. Um, this, is, this is the world um, that, that they live in. It's this, what does it mean to listen to your father's command and not forsake your mother's teaching? I want to go to the end of the passage that deals with this poor woman. This woman has shown up several times. In this one, she's married. Um, this is adultery of, of um, community destruction. Last week, we talked about how Proverbs, off, often this advice doesn't live in an individual ethic, which is, you know, you need to do this because you'll be a good person. Its ethic is, you need to do this because if you don't, the whole community crumbles into lies and destruction. Um, so to make vows and not keep them, to make marriage vows and to run over them. Uh, last week it was, it dealt with debt, work, like sitting out the harvest if you weren't half here, was one of those ways in which you could say this community is not going to make it, that was work. Um, and then some evildoers that would just plot and discord and destroy your community. And so part of Proverbs is saying, as a community, and, and the Jews that probably compiled the book of Proverbs seem to exist in a world in which they are the minority and extreme. And so how you preserve your community. You need thick walls, good guardrails to make sure that you guys trust each other and move through the world well. Now she's married, um, this forbidden woman, and so now it's talking about idolatry and the ways in which this can pull us astray and lead us from the way of life. She's quite powerful, and in one of the earlier ones that 
this woman was all um, feet and, and lips. She spoke and drew you to another path. Um, as we think about Proverbs often saying, there's a path to wisdom and a path to folly. She uh, is the personification of what draws you to folly. And I think it's helpful to say that she is um, the personification of the New Testament terms of the world, the flesh, and the devil. Those would be the three things that the New Testament often sets as what pulls Christians from their baptismal vows. The, the world, the flesh, and the devil. Um, you can go to churches that it's all devil, and you can go to churches where it's all world or all flesh, but uh, it's helpful to keep all those three things in mind, because if you lob off two of them, you're going to end up in some pretty dark places, I think. Um, but the point being is it's this personification of what can pull you from the way. Now, one of my favorite passages um, is Isaiah 44. It should pop up there. Okay, it's up there. Uh, in a second. Um, this is about um, sin and idolatry and what happens when we sort of practice in that way. I wanna, the line I'm thinking of here in this passage is that the prostitute you can have for a loaf of bread, but the, this adulterous woman, she pulls you down and costs you your whole life. Um, and that's sort of the warning here. Um, he cut down trees or cedars or perhaps took a cypress or a oak. He let them grow among the trees of the forest and planted a pine and rain made it grow. It was used as fuel for burning. Some of it he takes and warms himself. He kindles the fire and breaks bread. In sinfulness, I think what the, what the writer of Proverbs is saying here is that the prostitute is the warmth you get from baked bread. And this is where I think our human sinfulness, um, uh, if you're struggling with uh, lust and somebody walks by and and you take the glimpse, that's one thing, but to make a pattern of it is another thing, to live in that disrepair. You're struggling with greed, and, and to say that somebody, um, you get your tax return and you're excited to put it in your 401k, that's one thing, but to make a path of these things is another thing. That, that the little fire that warms you in our sinfulness sometimes isn't really the point. The point is, but he also fashions a god and worships it. He makes it an idol and bows down to it. Half the wood he burns in the fire, over it he prepares his meal, he roasts his meat, and he eats his fill. Here is the small comfort you get from your sinfulness. And, and with idolatry, or idolatry, adultery, I'm going to have to like restart the whole sermon with how many times I messed that up. Adultery, the number, the first 30 seconds that you betray all of your vows for is really the meal. The guilt comes in so fast. The emptiness sets in before you can do it. If you read literature from John Updike to anything else that has adultery in it, and some of these men are very, very familiar with, with it, um, you trade all of it for that 30-second rush. But he makes an idol of the other half. Half he burns, he roasts meat. He also warms himself and says, ah, I am warm, I see the fire. From the rest he makes, from the rest he makes his idol. He bows down to it in worship. He prays to it and says, Save me, you are my God. This is where we move from the acts. Um, uh, you go to a party, uh, you normally don't overindulge in alcohol. You overindulge in alcohol, you wake up the next morning, you repent, you 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 put on your sackcloth and ashes, and you move on with your life. This is the small fire of the action. You go out with your friends often. 
You overconsume in alcohol every time you go out with these friends, and you do it repeatedly and ritually. This fire, and he saved me. You are my God. <clears throat> we move from those places. We move, and this is part of what I think it's saying about this difference between the prostitute you get for a loaf of bread, but the forbidden woman, she will take everything. But in this chapter, it alludes her husband will also come and take more. Um, and in the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy, I think it's, it's the punishment for uh, adultery is um, death although rarely practiced, or no evidence that it's ever practiced. Um, but that, that's sort of like, this is what's at stake for communities in this. This is what's at stake for your own self to say, save me, you are my God. We went through this with the Book of Numbers often, about what does it mean to leave this territory of sin and slavery and death, which we all do in our baptisms, and walk towards the new promised land that God has before us. We, too, as I said oftentimes, are like these slaves freed from Egypt in the Book of Numbers, while in the wilderness we will lament, at least in Egypt we had garlic. We have our own sort of ways. At least um, before God had rescued me from, from one of these things, at the end of the workday I had some little fire that warmed my soul before I walked back into slavery again. Comfort ourselves in that way. Which raises the question of what's the alternative to this, but to, to habituated sin that can become our path, that becomes um, the ways in which we go. Um, I think it's it's what we started with, that, that teaching from uh, verses 20 through 24 here. Uh, on the left, sorry I went with such small fonts today. Um, on, the, on the right we have the Proverbs passage. On the left we have the Shema and the Deuteronomy passage. Uh, just to see some comparison here. Um, bind them on your heart. Fasten them around your neck. When you walk, they will guide you. And this is actually personified. Sorry, our, our Bible translations. You could actually translate these, and I'm going to read them this way. She. When you walk, she will guide you. When, she, when you sleep, she will watch over you. When you wake, she will speak to you. For this command is a lamp. This teaching is a light. And correction and instruction are the way to life, keeping you from your neighbor's wife and the smooth talk of a wayward woman. These are the ways in which we stay off that other path. Just to compare it with Deuteronomy uh, 6, um, these commandments I give you today are to be on your heart, bind them always on your heart, impress them on your children, um, uh, fasten them around your neck, Talk about them when you sit down and when you walk along the road. She will watch over you. She will guide you. When you lie down and when you get up, tie them as symbols on your hands. Fasten them around your neck up there. Sorry, I'm going so fast for this. Write them on you. That, that this Shema, that hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one, is, is portrayed in the same way in this sort of passage here. But there's a little bit of difference in the activity that's being undertook. You do a lot of it in Deuteronomy 4. And... Proverbs 6, it seems like the wisdom that's being advocated will come to you as well. That, that, that's part of the change here. Here's my attempt to draw all those um, pause for laughter. Moving forward. Um, the heart. Uh, we talked about the heart in Proverbs so far. This, um, this idea of 
of its deceit of your emotion. I mean, it's more like in that we, when I read the Bible, when I've read the Bible as a young person, even when I'm not reading it super consciously today, I read heart and I go, affections, which I think is, is a fine way to take it, but it would be more like the way we think of the mind today. It's the seat of all things. The heart in, in one of the previous Proverbs is what speaks your words, right? Most likely today, I think my words and then I speak them. Um, but in this ancient conception, the heart is being placed in this way of, of sort of being the center of all your being. And so it's to say, um, bind them always on your heart. Wear them around your neck. Now, I had something. Kelly made me this when we were dating. Uh, this is a uh, what they call a Protestant rosary um, because... I, it had to be, I guess. This is this, this just the rules. It couldn't have a Catholic rosary. It has to be. So there's a, the number of beads, uh, 33 for Jesus' life, four for the directions of consciousness. But you pray it three times through and do the inventory bead. It's 100, which is nice, so then you know where you are. Um, but I used to wear this on my neck often. It's a little big. Um, uh, but, you know, binding them on your neck was to be constantly reminded of these things. There's, there's this... Perhaps we resist this sort of Catholic or Jewish hocus-pocus idea of sort of like these things being on me doesn't, don't, doesn't do anything, which is so naive, right? Because whether it metaphysically does something or not, you see it. Like you go to the mirror and it's there. You run and it bounces on your chest. You, other people, see it. Other people acknowledge that it's there. To wear them is, is to do something else. When you walk, she will guide you. When you lay down, she will watch over you. When you wake, see that's, this is the second row in case my drawings aren't clear enough. When you wake, she will speak to you. Ellen Davis, one of the better commentators on this, says when you wake, she will speak to you. It's almost like pillow talk. And it's talking about this intimacy with, with God and wisdom here. That's the alternative to the other one. This is where like that bowing and forsaking and moving into to the gospel house with God and marriage is to say that you belong to one. It's not a denial of those other things. It's coming to know one whom you are bound with in a way that won't destroy you. It's to make a home. It's to be in a place. It's a lamp and it is a light. I think that these two are often lost on us. In the ancient world, you know, we all of us know this, there were no light switches. So you didn't go and turn on the light. You didn't go and um, do this. To, to have a lamp and to have light was to find security in the world. Most of the ancient world, when it was dark, people would go inside and board up their houses. You didn't go out at night um, without the formal police, um, which is almost all the ancient world, and without um, light emanating from places, it was dangerous to go out at night. To say and, and to walk at night, you would want a lamp. You would want some light. Um, you couldn't just grab a flashlight. To say that these things are a lamp and a light for us is to say that they will guide us in dark places. It's not a denial of dark places. Uh, top right, um, left your goodness, uh, like a fetter by my wandering heart to thee. They are a discipline and an instruction. E equals mc squared is an instruction, which, note to self, always look up the Hebrew first because it's actually not that type of instruction. Both of these are more like a discipline. Um, both of these are more like a, um, a prodding along the path or a guardrail. 
Um, but it is these things that are the way that lead you from the foreign woman or the forbidden woman in idolatry. It is inhabiting in these spaces. And so what we're actually offered in exchange is a different way of life, a different way of being, a different way of relating in the world that we uh, call baptism. And, and, and to end, we've got maybe two quick things to end with, is, is that what we see in this passage, I think, is something we see that the uh, lower right exodus upper left song of songs. I will take you as my own people and I will be your God. This is God claiming the people of Israel, making a people where there was no people, taking them and saying, you are mine. And this is how most of us, I think, think of the Christian life. But in Song of Songs, it says, the woman says of, of the man, my beloved is mine and I am his. Being adopted and brought into the household of God is also enabling this perverse claim. God, you are going to be faithful to me. God, we are committed to one another. It's actually, if you know the um, song Oceans, um, uh, I am his and he is mine, captures this from Hillsong in some ways. It's this way in which, which we also, because God has walked into sort of wedding himself to us, actually can, can rouse God as well. And that's what I think is happening in this inverse of some of these teachings in Deuteronomy 6 to Proverbs, or Deuteronomy 6 to Proverbs 6, yeah, is that this, this wisdom is now active. It's not just you recite it yourself, but it's something that watches over you, it guards you, it greets you in the morning when you rise. And so, um, the fear of the Lord sort of practice for this week. This is this is the end of the sort of baptism ceremony, which we'll read as our, our blessing for today's sermon. Heavenly Father, we thank you that by water and the Holy Spirit you have bestowed upon these, your servants, the forgiveness of sin. Receive them as your own children by adoption, made them members of your holy church, and raise them to new life of grace. Sustain them, O Lord, in your Holy Spirit, that they may enjoy everlasting salvation through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let us pray. God, you, through the voices of mother and father in the book of Proverbs, have preserved wisdom for us. Enable our hearts and minds to hear these truths, these words, and these wisdoms. Not just in these ways of avoiding idolatry or folly along the path of life, but in the positive direction of wedding ourselves to you and the baptism commitments we have made. But I ask that you not only impress them upon our hearts, but bind them there. But we're here to fasten them around our necks. When we walk, you will guide us. When we sleep, you will watch over us. When we wake, you will speak to us. For you have given us a lamp and a light, correction and instruction, to follow to the paths of the way of life that we see most clearly in your Son, Jesus Christ. Be near to us, Lord, the Father and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.